Howdy, and welcome to your dog's best life. This is Leanne, all by herself, again. So today, I have an interesting topic to talk about, and we'll see how it goes. Obviously, I can't even say the word topic, so hmm. I'm not fully caffeinated, so this could be a shit show. We'll see. Or goat rodeo, trying not to swear. Anyway, um, I'm going to talk today about training dogs and why we do it and kind of how I look at it. So I have a confession. I don't train my dogs very often. I, I really don't. Uh, Billy knows sit and down because down is her default and come, come and call. She can more or less walk on a leash and that is all. Uh, Ketchum, my 13-year-old barter collie who is going to be my first herding dog, she knows how to walk on a leash and sit and down she knows down and come and that's it uh the dogs who i work with the most so tag and cody and dice uh, between them probably have fewer than i would say definitely fewer than 20 or 30 behaviors uh, i mean they've sit and down and stay and behaviors on sheep and recall, of course, because that's really important, walking on a leash. But they don't have a thousand tricks. And I, I look at the trainers who, tra you know, Maggie, you know, you've heard, we've talked to Maggie before. She has, I think, she wrote it down, damn it, and I forgot. She just told me. She has like something like 70 cues or some ridiculous number of cues for her dogs. And she only has two dogs. It's not like she has 70 dogs. <laughs> that's, that's what it would be if it was me. It would be 70 cues and 70 dogs. So what? So if if I look at that, then I guess the question would have to be, well, if I don't train my own dogs 10,000 tricks other than herding, which is mostly just shaping behavior, not so much creating behavior from the whole cloth, what what do I bring the, to the table as a as a dog trainer? What why am I even here? And that did get me to thinking because I am very, very passionate about the lifestyle that dogs lead, much more so than I'm about training a, a bunch of tricks. And, and this is not about judging anybody for any decisions that they may make for their own dogs. Uh, everybody comes to any given animal from a different perspective, and, and that's what makes the world wonderful. And they give us the tools that allow us to to train how we want to train or, or shape dogs the way we want to shape dogs so um i'm going to tell you a little bit about kind of how i look at at dogs and animals and and the world all together and kind of walk through why i think how we think about dogs matters i mean there is relevance here other than me just telling you stuff about myself it's not about me it's about i think society and and you and your personal relationship with your dog, examining that and understanding it so that you know why you do the things you do or don't do the things you do. So when I was a kid, I we had a dog. Her, her name was Semper. Uh, my family had gone through a, a spate of naming every German Shepherd Semper Fidelis. And so her name was Semper. Uh, she was a German Shepherd and I trained her everything. She was my companion and she had a bunch of tricks and walked on, you know, she went, but the, she had a bunch of tricks, but then what she became to me, which was the most important thing was a co-conspirator in adventures. We would 
traipse all around the desert together. She would be off leash and I would be on my bicycle and she would run for miles while I as a little kid, and this is back in the day when little kids were pretty much feral animals can do whatever they wanted. I mean, I'm talking probably six, seven years old and I was out in the desert on a bicycle doing whatever I wanted. I mean, I was on dirt roads on my bicycle. This is before mountain bikes were invented. And so I had a lot of flat tires. <laughs> so what she became was a companion and, and a co-conspirator and part of, part of the adventures. I mean, she was, I remember looking at, you know, old photographs and back then you didn't carry cameras everywhere, but you know, the, she was in all of them. She, she was, she was part of the adventure. So my next dog, Scrapper, was my co-pilot. I lived all over the country. I trained horses all over the country. I lived in, in here in Arizona. I lived in Scottsdale, Arizona. I lived in Fort Collins, Colorado, Louisville, Kentucky twice, back to Arizona a couple times because it's warmer here. <laughs> I'm a baby. And she was always my co-pilot. She had a few tricks. She had Bang. That was her favorite. And she was a hell of a frisbee dog. She was amazing on frisbees. And she came with me on all the trail rides, and she had learned how to get up on the horse. As she got older, uh, she learned how to jump up on the horse. If, like, I rode the horse up towards an embankment, she could jump onto the horse, assuming the horse was tolerant of such madness. And she was, again, a part of the adventure. She she was, like I said, a co-pilot. And, and looking at animals as a whole people really kind of struggle with the idea sometimes of looking at dogs as animals. But, but if that um, kind of, I don't know, raises your hackles, just bear with me for a minute. I love animals. I, I grew up and wanting to be a, a wildlife biologist before I knew there was such a thing as ethnographers. I wanted to study wildlife. I wanted to be the person on the Mitchell of Omaha shows, you know, chasing rhinos. Uh, when I was, I, I, li I grew up here in the desert, and the most common wildlife in the desert are lizards. They're seasonal. We only get them in the summer. But they live fascinating lives. And I remember as a kid, I would sit there for hours watching the lizards do their little studly push-ups to defend their territory and having little squabbles at the edges of the territory and the males showing off to the females. And I just found all of this just fascinating in a way that I hope expressed the understanding that what I found fascinating were here are these animals, these little sparks of consciousness of, of life living this completely alien and fascinating world that was as meaningful and deep to them as my life of bike rides and training my dog was to me. I also <laughs> spent hours, I seem like a strange child, but it, I was normal most of the other times, okay? I did have I had friends, and I wasn't normal. But I did find, uh, I did find out we had those little tiny ants. Um, I think they're called fire ants. They're not really fire ants, I guess, in Arizona. But those little sugar ants, everybody knows what I'm talking about, those little red bastards who bite. They had a trail going on this is the 70s so the line that demarcated our property from the neighbor's property was a row of those shiny white marble rocks and so we'd row the shiny white marble rocks separating 
our property from the neighbor's property. And these ants had quite an elaborate nest, and then they used these rocks as a little trail to get to and from wherever they were going. And I have no idea where they were going. And I learned that if you went and you took your finger and you brushed out the trail that these ants made, you could then replace, say, the, the whole up and down V-shaped canyon between rocks with a stick to make a bridge. And if you place the stick right at the ends of the two trails, the ants would circle around and they would... Um, Finally, there'd be a bold little ant who would make a decision, and he'd go partway up the stick and then turn around and come back, and then maybe the next one to go a little further, and eventually they would carve a new, a new pathway for themselves, and there'd be a new pass over the, over the mountain ranges, as it were. And I, I again, just found this, this fascinating because I, I was a little kid. I didn't understand the genetics of ants. I didn't understand, um, you know, colonial beings... Uh, not that I really understand them now. I, I did find it fascinating that some of the bolder ants were the ones who made the decisions to cross the new gap. I, I, find it, I found it fascinating that for a while they'd all mill around to the end of the stick. They'd all just circle around because there was no trail. The trail had erased it. And so they'd circle around. They're all agitated and upset. And then eventually one of the ants would would take the chance and go onto the stick where there was no scent. And then that ant having left that scent would then come back and another one would go further and further and, and leapfrogging, they would eventually cross a stick and create a new trail and, and their world would be completely changed because I moved a stick. And again, I, I found that just fascinating. I just, I loved things like that. I love watching animals for what they bring to the table. I love my chickens for that. Chickens live, you guys would have no, if you don't have chickens, you'd have no idea the, the incredibly complex lives that chickens have. Uh, roosters lie. Uh, they, one of the things, the behaviors they have to get a hen to come over to them is they will say they have awesome food and the hen will come over and, and they'll make a little call, this little awesome food call. And the hens will all come running over. Ooh, 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 what do you have? And the rooster may have just picked up a rock because he wants the hens close to him and he, you know, to carry on roostery things. So he lied. Dude, the rooster lied. And the hens fell for it. And I suspect that if you study chickens long enough, you'd probably learn that there's a sweet spot between when the rooster's lies um, continue working for him and when they start, the chickens, the hens start to uh, ignore him. Uh, I find all of this fascinating. So let's talk dogs, because <laughs> no one here probably cares about ants. Dogs are animals. That is my viewpoint of dogs. I don't think of that as a bad thing. We are all animals. And as a distinctive species, I find the idea that I am living with an animal whose mind I cannot understand and whose motives I can only barely scratch the surface of fascinating. And when I, I look at a dog, uh, whether it's my own or clients or, or a friend's dog, I don't look at it as a 
relationship that would replace people. I don't think that's fair to the dog. I don't think that's appropriate for human being. I, I don't, I think that puts a lot on a dog that's not what the dog wants. I don't look at it as a blank slate on which to place my, um, uh, how do I say this? I don't look at a dog as a way to exert my authority on the environment. I, I don't look at a dog as some place to show off my training skills, which is unfortunate, and that shows in my videos. <laughs> Uh, not that I think there's anything wrong with that sounding like Seinfeld it, it's not about right and wrong it's just what I'm telling you guys I bring to the table because I think I do see dogs in a very specific way in a society that's changing right now I mean right now a lot of people see dogs as um, both more and less than what I think they really are they want them to take the place of human interaction and and place all their all their worries on this this animal while at the same time denying the animal being an animal and and that's always not sat right with me I've, I've really struggled with that when we put a dog on a pedestal we remove the dogginess of a dog um, I admire my dogs for their quote-unquote loyalty which is something I struggle with the idea that a dog understands perhaps I certainly know that they feel affection so I I feel that that affection and I I understand it and I certainly reciprocate at the same time I can watch my dogs <laughs> roll in cow shit and know that they are having the time of their lives and as long as it doesn't adversely affect me over the fact that I'm not going to pet them <laughs> for quite a while and probably not let them in the house for a bit uh it's none of my business uh they that's what brings them joy that's what lights their fires so when i see a dog i see not a blank slate on which to exert my will i don't see a blank canvas on which to paint my masterpiece of training uh though i certainly would like to i mean i, I when i when i pick up a border collie I would love the idea that eventually showing up at Meeker or one of the big you know sheepdog trials and that is certainly in in my future and I hope it's in Tag's future but I don't see her as just that and she has to be along for the ride it can't be something that's placed down on her it has to be something she wants as much as as I do she doesn't know what Meeker means but she knows that sheep are kick ass so as long as I'm taking her to sheep she could give a crap where those sheep are located um, I don't see them as a uh, innocent this also rubs me very much the wrong way um, oh he's an innocent puppy you shouldn't euthanize him because he he ate a child uh, he's an animal and and he's an animal who's an apex predator and he lives in our house, and he has broken the covenant. And whether or not we agree or disagree that the dog could be rehabbed, if the dog doesn't have a home, the dog doesn't have a future. I, I'm sorry. If he's your dog, and you want to continue taking that chance, that's on you. But if he doesn't have a home, the idea that we can rehab this dog and place him back in society is offensive to me. Um, they are an animal. And just like any other animal, a human animal, uh, they can have wiring issues, they can have pathological issues 
and they are not babies. They are not, we need to stop infantilizing dogs. They are full grown, fully capable, fully um, automatic. They, They are in possession of their decisions and in possession of their lives. And yes, we can shape those decisions through training Yes, we can shape them through genetics and, tra- and breeding, but when it comes down to it, dogs are a fully formed adult animal and should be treated as such. Uh, I, I find it somewhat horrifying to see everybody freaking out about if they're cold. If I'm cold, they're cold. Um, if they don't live inside, you're cruel. If you let them do a job, you're mean. If your dog ever feels even the slightest discomfort, discomfort, you're, you're a monster. I'm sorry, that's not how life is. Some dogs love being outside. They revel in it. Billy is an outside dog. She is an outside dog. Right now, Tag is outside. That is where Tag wants to be. Um, I, the idea that somehow inside is better is ludicrous. We watch TV inside. Dogs don't give two shits what's on your TV. They don't care about watching you watch videos. They want to have adventures. And if nothing else, I urge everybody, if you get a dog, don't use that as an excuse to spend more time inside. Use it as an excuse to spend more time exploring your wonderful, amazing environment. Make your dog your co-pilot and go places, do things. Because you know what? Your dog's never going to say no. <laughs> They're never going to say they don't want to go on that trail or the hike's too long or anything like that. They're going to go. So so I, I look at dogs as this fascinating beast, this fascinating creature, this spark of intelligence and consciousness with an internal mind that I cannot even begin to understand, even though I tried my damnedest. And I look at them and I, the question I ask is not, what can I make of this dog? Or what can I achieve with this dog? Though those are always, don't forget me wrong, they're, they're there. I mean, there's a reason I don't own every random mutt that people have, have said needed homes. Um, I do have goals. But at the same time, I look at the dogs, my dogs, any dog, and I say, how can I shape your life to give you the best of your life? and meet your needs and help you move forward in, in your life. So as an example, I, I use Dice as an example a lot because for me, he's been a massive struggle. He is a very difficult dog for a person like me. Um, some dogs are, are better for some people and some dogs are harder for some people. And Dice has been a struggle for me. Dice is a neurotic, worried dog. And even though I love working with other people's neurotic, worried dogs, because I understand it, living with my own neurotic, worried dog is literally a pain in the ass. And I don't want to do that kind of training. I want to do the fun stuff with my dogs. I want to have fun and not worry about, you know, how does this behavior or how does my mood or how does this affect my dog? So Dice has been a struggle and I didn't look, I don't look at Dice and say to myself, what can I teach him to make his neuroses less, less offensive to me? I, I don't look at Dice and say, what kind of tricks can I give him to make him look cool for videos? Cause he's a handsome dog. I don't look at Dice and say, 
any of these things. I don't look at Dice and say, how can I force him into a box of what I prefer a dog to be? I look at Dice and say, with the tools that you bring to the table, the behaviors that you have, and the dog that you are, how can I help you find your way to a better outlook on life? How can I help you forge your own path but by providing the tools? That's where the training comes in. So the training is not tricks. The training is um, if this happens, do this. If the, you know contingencies, uh, creating pathways, creating resilience in the face of challenges, which for dice could be anything. I mean, like I, I think I've said here before, when I first time I clicked a clicker for him, he literally fled the room. He fled the room and would not take treats for 15 minutes because he heard a click from a clicker. He one time ran down the stairs because I closed the bedside table uh, drawer and the noise was too much and he fled downstairs. He, uh, when I first started working him with stock, he would get upset and frantic out if I showed him that he was mistaken in a decision and he would start harassing and attacking the stock. He, he gets frantic when he's upset. He makes bold and bad decisions when he's upset, which makes him even harder. He doesn't get worried and shut down. He gets worried and becomes this frantic dog who comes running up to you. He's in your face. He's at your feet. He's, he's there in your space. And I just, I find that to be a very difficult dog personally. And so what we've spent the last, I've owned him for five years. What we spent the last five years doing is helping him learn to deal with life as it is, not shielding him from life, not saying you're, you, we're going to set up your world so you never hear jets overhead again. Um, we, I didn't not close doors around him. I don't not put books down around him. I've taught him that these things aren't his problem. They're not his issue, that, that I will take care of these things. And I didn't do it with fancy tricks, and I didn't do it with a top-down, you-will-be-in-place-all-day approach that, that negates his emotional needs. I, I did it by finding the pathway to his joy that he found most rewarding. And it's been a, it's been a struggle. It's, it's, not, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, Cody, on the other hand, came to me with a bunch of behavior issues, and, and you would have thought that she would have been the difficult dog. She's a shadow chaser. She had a bite history. She was neurotic to the nth degree. She couldn't be outside for two or three minutes without shutting down and going underneath vehicles to hide from the shadows. Um, and she's been a dream because, again, it, it, was, it came down to helping her forge her world and giving her what she needs, which in her case is... A lot of work, a fair amount of structure, and some and some fun games. She loves to train. Training makes her happy, so we train with her a lot. Um, she doesn't really know anything because apparently I can't finish a trick. I can only start them. But we do free shaping, and we do silly things, and we do healing, and we do rally obedience. And she's actually competed in rally obedience. Of course, we do the sheep because she loves that. And we take ATV rides and, you know, things along those lines. A lot of puzzle games, a lot of scatter feeding. That's what makes, that's what makes her happy. 
And so for me, when I, when I look at my dogs, when I look at any dog, it, it's, it's what can I do with the dog that's in front of me to help that dog achieve that dog's best life? Not what can I do to help the owners have their best life with that dog? Cause that's not necessarily what's best for the dog, right? I mean, as much as I serve owners and so owners are the people who pay my bills and I love my owners, I, I make sure I have owners who have an f- absolute fundamental understanding of what makes a dog a dog. And if they think that the best life for their dog is to stay in a place command for 12 hours a day and then go to bed, I'm not going to take that person on as a client. That is not a person who respects in any way, shape, or form a dog. They should just get a houseplant or a stuffed animal. I want, I want people who are meeting me in the same place. And I, I get those. I mean, that's what's wonderful about my, my clients is my clients um, come to me generally with these higher drive breeds, the Border Collies and the Aussies and the, the Rescue Pitties and Terriers and those types of dogs because they want a companion. They do hiking. They do biking. They, they go camping. They travel. Maybe they're, they're snowbirds and they have an RV and they go back and forth to some wonderfully cool place every summer. And those people want that dog to be a part of their life. They're, the dog is not a replacement for friends. It's not a uh, place to put all their emotional baggage. It is merely something that enriches an already enriched life. And I, I think that is an important caveat, is an di- important distinction. Um, I have friends who can't go on vacation because of their dogs. And I'm not talking about the number of dogs. Yes, I have some friends like that. <laughs> but... Not that. <laughs> I'm talking about their dogs have problems that have not been addressed, that they can't leave their dogs for fear that the dogs will, you know, self-injure themselves or, or do some damage. And it's like, well, I, why, would you want, why would you want your dog to live in that state, for one thing? I mean, that's, how is that fair? How is it fair to own this animal, to have taken on this responsibility? And allow it to suffer in such a manner that you can't even leave it with a high quality sitter for a weekend or a trainer, you know, you maybe, you know, or their veterinarian. So I think how we look at dogs defines how we treat our dogs. And I, I say this again with, with probably some judgment. <laughs> I can't please everybody. If you think your dog is your best friend, and your buddy, and the stand-in for all your emotional needs and baggage, I think that you are going to create an illusionary world around that animal that is not fair to the animal. And I think that you're going to constrain that dog to, the li- to life to the point where it fits your needs, but I don't necessarily think the needs of the dog would be met. On the other hand, if you look at the dog as something that must obey you, as, as simply another tool by which you control the environment I really have a a massive problem with that as well dog is not something that you just layer um, commands on top of and show off to the world about how incredibly well behaved you've got this dog who's flat and hates their lives Um, I don't see a dog as a 
venue for fame and fortune. <laughs> How convenient for me. Um, but there, again, there's nothing that I, I really, the first two I do think does do damage to the dog. I think those folks who put a boatload of tricks on their dogs or do, you know, great agility work with their dogs or do com- competition with their dogs, I think that in most cases they are smart enough already to be picking out the dogs for whom that trajectory is what the dog desires and absolutely needs in their life. And so it's a, it's a confluence of, of, of goals in that case. You, you, don't, you don't get a pug necessarily to become your world champion agility dog. Uh, that's, not a, that's not a recipe for success. So, you know, the people who want the world champion agility dogs, they go out and they get the Border Collies and the Shelties and the American Shepherds because those are the dogs who are going to light up when they see the agility course and see that their job is to go as fast as they possibly can through these, these obstacles. Uh, I, I think that fulfilling a dog's life that way is fantastic. And I think that for most of those dogs are completely fulfilled, as are the humans on the other end of the spectrum. I think where we have struggles is in the pet dog world, where I think there's a, a misunderstanding and a misconstruing of what dogs are. I, we've cityfied people to the point where, where they no longer understand that animals are very, very resilient, that they are very uh, strong and able to survive and not just fight, but thrive on challenges and uh, problem solving and getting up every day with either a job or a goal in mind. Um, I think that when we fail to give that to our dogs, I don't care how many clothes your dog wears or what kind of food he eats, his life's shit. If your dog isn't able to find puzzles to solve during the day and challenges to be met and conquered, that's a pretty dismal life for most dogs. Now, some dogs, you know, their idea of conquering a, <laughs> conquering a challenge is how hard is it to get on the couch that day. But for many, many dogs, um, when given the opportunity, they're going to take a challenge over a flat life with a food bowl delivered twice a day on the clock. Uh, I'll give you a little scientific uh, piece of information on that. Uh, the act of choosing to work for food over free food is called contra-freeloading. It's a bizarre name. I'm sure it made sense to the scientists who discovered it. And what contra-freeloading means is when the scientists offered the opportunity to animals to work for food versus receiving the same food for free, that most animals will in fact choose to work for food. Except, and I don't know if this is true, but I did read this, so, you know, (laughs) take it with a grain of salt. But I think I read it in a pretty good book. Cats. (laughs) Apparently cats don't contra-freeload. Cats are like, no, I'll take it. Thank you. I'll take the free food. Uh, Whether or not that's true, uh, you know, somebody can look that up for me and, and, and tell me if I'm telling the truth. So the other day I had, you know, Billy doesn't work for food. I think everybody has already learned that who's listened to my podcast or face follows me on Facebook. Billy's idea of work is she barks all night long at monsters, but food is really very low on her, on her list of necessary things. And she could give two shits literally about food and food, food at night, feeding her is this long ordeal of me putting the food bowl down and her taking a couple of kibbles. She lays down to eat because it's exhausting to stand and, 
she takes a couple kibbles and she might take a nap and then she might wander around the house and she might forget that there's food and you have to show her again. And this whole ordeal can take anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour, depending on how, what kind of mood I'm in. And so the other day we had, I had the food bowl down in the house for her and all the other dogs we put away, you know, I don't allow dogs to harass each other when they're eating. So they're all separated. And I had that Kong wobbler out um, and those who don't know it, the Kong Wobbler is about a, maybe an eight inch tall toy that looks like a standard rubber Kong toy, those rubber beehive things. And it has a hole in the side. It's made of hard plastic. And you open the, you screw it open and or unscrew it and you put dog kibble in there. And it's like a, for anybody who remembers these, Weeble, <laughs> the bottom is heavy. And it, the dogs can knock it around the, the room. And as they knock it around, the, the food comes out of the little hole. So it's not exactly rocket science to figure out how to get the food out, but it does take work. So Billy's, you know, snorfling around the house and checking to see if anything had changed in her absence. And she discovered this, this Kong wobbler. And she has a full, full bowl of food that she's thoroughly ignoring on the floor. And she played with this, this wobbler for about 10 minutes for the probably five kibbles that were left in it from the other dogs having abandoned it or been asked to abandon it before they were ready. So I'm watching this dog who literally will not work for food, like at all, like <laughs> at all, working for food while her empty with a full bowl of dog food sat within five feet of where she was playing. That's contra-freeloading. And that tells you what your dogs want. They want to problem solve. You know, Billy could give, she didn't care. The food was not the issue. It was how do I make the food come out of this thing? What, what do I need to do to solve this incredibly pretty easy puzzle, but still complicated enough for a dog? So I think that when we look at our dogs, I think we have to look at the dogs and understand that we're looking at the dogs, our dogs, through a lens. And how we look, and the lens that we wear when we're looking at our dogs affects how we treat our dogs. And again, this isn't about necessarily placing judgment or, you know, my way is better than your way. Though, of course, I believe it. Otherwise, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to pick a way that I think is stupid. Uh, I mean, I believe down to the sole of my feet that allowing these animals to fully engage as many of their animalistic instincts and desires within the parameters of living in a, in a human society is the best thing that we can do for them. And I think providing them the freedom to make as many choices and have as much autonomy as possible is also the best thing that we can do for them. And I believe that when we are faced with, when they are faced with shortcomings that affect their quality of life, whether that shortcoming is that they are reactive to other dogs and therefore they can't go on leash walks anymore and that affects their quality of life, or they're very fearful and because of that, every new novel thing is terrifying for them, that affects their quality of life. I think when we are faced with a dog like that, we have to look at that dog and say, well, okay, this is what we have. This is where we're at. How can I add things or take things away from the environment to help this dog become a better dog 
in the society that we're in now. We can close off our dogs to the point where nothing scary happens to them, but that might be denying them the best life. Uh, if your dog is frightened of cars, they're going to have a really shitty life if you live in Manhattan. So you need to do something. You need to counter condition and work on making that dog comfortable with the idea that cars exist in their environment or their life is shit. So I think when I, when I think about training other than on sheep, where I do really work hard at, at shaping the behaviors that my dogs bring to the table, I look at training as giving my dogs the tools necessary to help build them to experience their all too brief life in the best light that I can make possible for them. And I hope that that's the attitude, even if, if it's unarticulated and unexplored, that my clients bring to the table. And that is the environment, that is the world that I see when I think of my life and our lives with dogs. And um, so I guess that's kind of what I had to say. I have no idea how long this took. Um, but I, I hope that you understand. I know this might have been pretty muddy, and I know there are a lot of stops and starts. I'm going to have to edit the shit out of this. But when I, when I think about dogs, that's what I think about. When I think about training dogs, that's why I think about training. When I look at behavior that's brought to the table from a dog, I don't look at tricks, and I don't look at obedience, and I don't look at necessarily you know things like that. I look at what tools can we give this dog to help this dog live their best life. And for many, many of the dogs that I work with, the tools are more training. I mean, I'm not going to pretend that that's not true. I mean, you, if you buy a, a border collie that has been dread for five generations to be agility champion, and you decide that take it into the house and not train it because you're like, well, he has all the tools to be fine. He's not, he's going to be a psychopath. The tools that he has brings to the table are the tools to be the next world champion agility dog. And you need to step up and give him what he can achieve. That's, I mean, I, I look at, I look at the dogs that I receive that I have, that have landed in my life, you know, Cody and Dice and Tag and even, and even Ruby, but she doesn't do sheep. I, I look at them as Here's this dog, excluding Ruby, who has all this instinct telling them how to handle these quasi-wild animals in sheep. And they have all of this hardwiring that I cannot even begin to understand or fathom that tells them that this sheep is about to make a, a break for it or if I place just this much pressure on this sheep, he will turn tail and, and head back into the, into the flock that I just need to add this much speed, I need to give this much distance to the stock, or they'll shift. All of that's right there, it's, it's in their heads. I, that toolbox came to me in my dog. And, and I look at it as, as a bit of a obligation to take those tools and use them. And that's why they're there. And, and I look at that as, as my honor, is I'm honored to be able to to have these amazing dogs who can, who can do these amazing things that I can't even fathom. Uh, and and I, I look at training them as my gift, my gift to help them better show me their skills. And 
and you can and that doesn't have to be a herding dog or a dog you know with those kinds of instincts obviously malinois for for bite work and german shepherds for bite work or you know pities for for just destroying shit you know i mean a pity a pity a lot of pities just give them something to tug on and step back you know they're they're happy as hell if they can just shred the shit out of things um but that toolbox came with that dog and i think that we need to both feel honored to have it honored that our life with that dog will be trying to plumb its depths honored to try to bring to the table our end of the deal if that means taking agility classes uh, take agility classes. It mean, if that means exploring a new a new sport. So here's a perfect example. I do herding dogs. That's what I really really love for my own dogs. And Ruby came to me uh, through a series of of issues or a series of events uh, from a from a former client who had come out a year before for a herding trial. And I don't remember being particularly impressed with Ruby at that time. She was six months old, but you know, at six months you can't tell. She came back to me at a year and a half when one of her owners passed away suddenly and the other owner knew that she couldn't give the proper life to this dog and made the correct decision to find a, a place where the dog would thrive and chose me. And I, again, feel honored for that. And Ruby sucks at stock. She's terrible. She is appalling. She goes out and she's like, look, they, they're Pez dispensers. I'm going to eat poop out of their butts. It's disgusting. And her body language is, is very soft and bouncy and happy. And the sheep actually don't even care about her presence around them. Uh, she runs around the pen. She loves chasing the sheep on the outside. But once she's in with them, she's like, I don't see the point. So... Here's this dog with all this drive, and she's got some behavioral issues to boot, and she she's a totally different dog than the border collie. She's she's just so wound up all the time and bouncy and happy and really 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 wants to be with me. My border collie's uh, dice really wants to be with me, but Cody would run over my rotting corpse to get to sheep, and Tag would at least say, "Oh, it's too bad she died. Where are the sheep?" Um, whereas Ruby, <laughs> Ruby needs me. I'm I'm her. I'm her uh, lodestone. Uh, I've noticed that with Aussies. Aussies tend to be much more handler-oriented than the Border Collies I've owned, at least. Um, and I have this dog who doesn't do the sport that I, that I choose for my dogs because I get the dogs who choose that sport themselves. So, so I, she loves disc. She loves playing Frisbee. I'm like, okay, well, I can't throw a Frisbee worth of shit. <laughs> I'm terrible. She came with three Frisbees, and I kid you not, within the first week, they were all in trees around my property. And just to give you an idea, I live in the desert. It's not like I'm festooned with trees. I live in open grassland with occasional oak trees, and the trees were, in fact, littered with her sadly maimed Frisbees. But I learned. I, she brought to the table a skill set, and it was something that I was willing to pursue for her, and, you know, for myself, I can't pretend I'm, you know, I'm not a saint. I, it's fun. You know, I love to give myself challenges, too. I, I believe in working <laughs> for my food, as it were. Uh, I like to see a challenge and, and overcome it. Or in the case of Frisbee, uh, be completely and endlessly humbled by it because I suck breathtakingly badly at throwing Frisbees for her. Um, so we, we're traveling this journey together. 
And, and my goal when I, I look at Ruby is to try to adjust my expectations and my lifestyle as best I can to accommodate her while at the same time remaining true to, to, to myself and, and not losing myself in a dog. I mean, I have, I, I keep losing crack. I have dogs. I can't, you know, I can't serve all of them 100% of the time, but I can certainly serve their needs as best I can as often as I can. So I, I hope I've made my point without belaboring it to the point of nausea. I hope no one dozed off. We'll have to edit the shit out of this and see what it looks like. Um, thank you for listening again. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to like, share, shit. <laughs> what the hell? Like, share, subscribe, comment. I believe. If you want to contact me, I'm at empireridgeranch.com. You can email through the website. You can uh, hook me up on Facebook. I'm at Empire Ridge Ranch on Facebook. I do not accept strangers as friends on my personal page. Um, you don't want to know my politics anyway. And um, nice time with you guys. Happy training, and I'll talk to you all later. <laughs>